And now the, uh, the Bible reading this morning is from 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 2 and the verses 10 to the end. So 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, begin reading at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And uh, now I'd like to welcome Brother Jack to the pulpit. Thank you. Good morning. Let us pray again. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for gathering us together once again to worship you. We now pray that you prepare our hearts and speak to us as we hear from your word. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our text for the sermon this morning comes from Psalm 120. So please turn with me to Psalm 120. Psalm 120, beginning from verse 1. And this corresponds to the passage we've just heard from 1 Peter. A song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. 
What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me, that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I wonder if you remember the last time you felt homesick. Perhaps you've been traveling during the holiday, and perhaps you are traveling even now. And even on these fun trips during the holiday, towards the end of it, maybe some of us will miss our beds. We feel a little homesick. I remember when we moved to New Zealand about 30 years ago. I used to really miss Taiwan, where I was born. Even though I was with my family, with my parents, with my siblings, and I really quite enjoyed New Zealand as my new home, but still there were times、um, when I really missed Taiwan. And so there were a few times I would、um, make international calls back to Taiwan. Thirty years ago, I wasn't calling anyone in particular、uh, because that would have been really expensive. What I did was, as a twelve-year-old.、Uh, Dial a number that is unlikely to get connected, so something like seven sevens or seven ones, just so that I can hear the recording. The number you have dialed is not valid. Please check and dial again. In Mandarin, in a voice of a very very nice lady. <laughs> and hearing that voice、uh, made me feel like I was able to reconnect with. That familiar place, thousands of miles away, the place I used to call home. What was it that I was really missing? Behind the things that I could remember, that I thought I was missing, behind the the sights, the smells, the food, the friendship, and the fond memories, was there something deeper behind the feeling of homesickness? Deep down, the feeling of homesickness probably. Points to the longing to be where you belong, where you feel you belong, to the place where we feel like we fit in, to a place where we know our way around, where we know the people well and they know us, where there are no strangers and no strange things. Moving to the other side of the world for me、uh, triggered that longing. I felt a little bit out of place and was missing. The place that I call home, and here in Psalm 120, I believe we see a believer who was obviously homesick as well, as a sojourner. He was away from his people, and he was away from the comfort of his home. But more than that, what triggered his longing for home was just not、uh, not just the fact that、uh, he was living among strangers, but actually. He was living among people who were openly hostile to him. They weren't just different; they were actually in conflict with him, and this was causing him a lot of distress. So, then, in the、uh, opening verse, the psalmist says, "In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me." And so, we find here in the beginning that the first thing that distressed the psalmist. Felt what it did was, while painful, but turned out to be for the good of the psalmist, because it pushed him 
to the Lord. And it's interesting that before he even speaks to the Lord, he had to say something to himself. Before he even pleads to God for deliverance, he had to remind himself of something. That in his distress, he has called on God before, and God has been faithful to deliver him in the past. It seems that the psalmist, like all of us, tends to forget what it's like to trust God. To trust that He is always present, even in our distress. And He is always ready to help us, ready to hear our prayers, just as He has done in the past. This forgetfulness is not just in the psalmist's head. He's not trying to remember something in his head, but he's trying to remember something in his heart. He knows in his head what God is like, and he knows what, he has done, what God has done for him in the past. But at this moment, he needed to speak to his heart, to remind it, to trust what he knows in his head, to trust God and believe that he is the same today in his distress as he was yesterday. I should finish my studies with the RTC next month, God willing. And I remembered back four years ago in my first semester, and I felt everything was quite new and quite challenging after being away from school for a while, but I expected that, and yet I had high hopes that it will get easier, it will get better as I learn more things. And by the last semester, by the eighth semester, I probably won't be stressed about the deadlines anymore, and I will be ready to jump back into full-time ministry. I just finished my last semester, last month, and it was still hard, and I was still stressed. I've gotten better at some things, but honestly, the stress was pretty similar to the first semester, and there was still a part of me that wondered how I was going to get through it, how I was going to ask God for help. My head can tell me, well, just go through it like you did uh, the seven other semesters. It happened before. But my heart is much more forgetful. And I had doubts, and I was stressed. My heart was stubborn. So while I knew in my heart what to do and to pray to God for a peace of mind and to depend on Him, but I needed to remind my heart to trust God in that prayer. That just as He has sustained me in the past, He is still the loving and faithful God in my present distress, even though my heart is slow to believe. Obviously, that doesn't mean that I should pass everything just because I trust in God. Uh, I shouldn't assume the outcome of each semester. It will happen as God wills. But I can trust that He is good and He is kind and He has a plan for me. There's no telling whatever happened to the psalmist in Psalm 120 after his prayer, if his circumstances changed, if his persecutors uh, went away. But he trusted in God in his, in his prayer and in his distress. And we can trust that he is in good hands, whatever happened. Many of you, many of you probably won't struggle like I do with school. But the test of distress will probably come for all of us in various forms. 
and there's a cyclical nature to it. It's not like we learn one lesson, we've been through distress and deliverance, and then we're done with it. There's a rhythm to the process of learning to trust God. As we will see from Psalm 120, that there's something about God's people in particular in this world that almost guarantees distress. And that is the fact that we are sojourners. We are in many ways away from our home for the moment. And we are only passing through a strange and hostile land. But this is where God wants us now. To experience prayers, to depend on Him, and to experience answered prayers, and to be light and salt of the world. And the rhythm of this distress in crying to God, while painful for the psalmist and for us as well, they push us to experience God's presence. And they also remind us of who we are as God's people, different from the world and where we belong, which is not here. In verse 2, the psalmist narrows down on the kind of distress that he is going through. Now, a lot of times, our, our distress is caused by our own sin and our uh, unbelief, our stubborn hearts. And on these occasions, our prayers will be one of confession, one of uh, asking God for the assurance of forgiveness in Christ, as well as strength to overcome sin. But Psalm 120 is not talking about that kind of distress. In Psalm 120, we see a kind of distress that is not caused by the sin of the psalmist. And actually, he was distressed precisely because he refused to sin. He refused to sin like others. He refused to live like the people around him. That is why he stood out. And that, he, that is why he was isolated. That is a particular kind of distress for the people of God in this world. That is why he says he's in conflict with what he called lying lips and deceitful tongue in verse 2. And I don't think the psalmist here is just calling them names. The psalmist is using lying lips and deceitful tongue to describe his enemies, to describe their character and the nature of their being. This was his way of describing his neighbors, his enemies, who have no love for truth and who have no fear for God. This is often how the psalmist describes unbelievers or uh, those outside of God in Psalms. Jesus also said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. If God is the truth, then deception is the beginning of all ungodliness and all evils, and all evils begin with some form of lies, some thought of falsehood, lies such as, where's God? Or, did God really say? Essentially, the psalmist here is describing the conflict between God's people and the unbelieving world. This is why he feels justified in saying that these men who are persecuting him, they deserve sharp arrows and glowing coals of the broom tree in verse 4. And this is the language of war, uh, using sharp arrows and glowing coals. 
of the broom tree. They, are, they describe uh, what is used in battles in the ancient Near East to lay waste to a city after it's defeated. Verse 3 and 4 says, What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, your deceitful, your deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. But who is the psalmist calling on to be at war with his enemies? Is he calling uh, for violence, for retaliation? Not really. He's calling for judgment from God. And there's a world of difference between the two. Violence may have to come in God's judgment. But it is the judgment of God that the psalmist is hoping and is finding comfort in. It is not the relishing in the uh, torturing of his enemies that he finds comfort, but he is finding comfort in justice, in God's coming judgment. Because we know that even God doesn't take pleasure in the violence when it's justly executed. Ezekiel 31, 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So the psalmist is not calling for violence or retaliation alone from himself or anyone else. Actually, it's precisely because he's placing his hope in the judgment of God that he can let go of his own judgments. But he does find comfort in knowing that judgment is coming, even if it's not now, and that God is the just judge who will execute judgment. And this is a legitimate comfort, a legitimate hope for God's people, especially for those who are suffering injustice or persecution, which we know many of the believers are right now. We think uh, in the West, we do experience some form of persecution and isolation, but there are people all over the world who experience desperate, desperate persecution. And it is a legitimate comfort and legitimate plea and hope for these persecuted Christians in the judgment of God, in the coming judgment. We can find comfort in knowing that God sees every crime and no one no one is getting away with anything. There are times when it seems that the wicked people are getting away with something, that the wicked flourish and live rich lives and die peaceful deaths while unspeakable crimes are being committed. Lying lips and deceitful tongues seem to be running rampant in this world without the fear of God. But we remember and we must remember that God is the just judge, and all crimes are being recorded, and they will be revealed and dealt with. And all the tears of the mistreated, the persecuted, will be wiped away. Sharp arrows and glowing coals are stored in heaven, and they will be unleashed on the day of judgment. But even as we hope for God's judgment, which is legitimate, we are also called to hope for God's mercy, to pray for our enemies. Romans 12 from 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in facing the chaos of this world, believers are called to pray for the mercy of God, even for our enemies to turn from their evil ways. At the same time, we can remember that just judgment is coming and find hope and comfort in that. Either in mercy or in judgment, God will demonstrate His glory and the people of God will be sustained, will be delivered. The psalmist continues to describe his distress and he says in verse 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedah. And here we find that the sojourner's longing leads him towards heaven. It lifts his eyes up towards heaven. And this is where the psalmist mentions the fact he's a sojourner. And apparently seems to suggest that his pain or his uh, problems come from the fact that he is a sojourner in a strange place. And he says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, and he mentions Kedar as well. But these two places, Meshach and Kedar, are probably mentioned for their reputation and not really necessarily where the psalmist is living. They are mentioned here uh, similar to how Sodom and Gomorrah are often used to represent immorality. And the reputation of Meshach and Kedar uh, is the people of Meshach are known to be barbarians uh, in their time. And the people of Kedar are from violent warrior tribes. So this is what the psalmist is saying, mentioning these two places. He's away from home, among strangers, who are like barbarians and are violent people, and they are openly hostile to him. Our neighbors are probably not as bad, or most of us anyway. But the point stands that God's people are different fundamentally, and there's a conflict on different levels. There's a conflict of values and nature and life that cannot be avoided. Jesus' prayer to, to God in John 17 says, I do not ask that you take them, referring to uh, the disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So if, as believers, you ever feel misunderstood or misrepresented or mistreated by this world, by the society, by uh, the authorities, it's probably because you are misunderstood, misrepresented or mistreated. In many, many ways, this world is a strange place to believers because it has no fear of God and no love for truth. But we are not here as sojourners on our own and not by accident. This is the will of God. And He is with us to hear our prayers and answer our prayers on this journey. And once again, we are called to be light and salt of this world. We have a purpose 
And on the way, on this journey,、uh, as sojourners, we have fe- fellow sojourners, like、uh, our gathering this morning. We have fellow sojourners on the same journey to keep us company and to support each other. And also, our salvation is not just for the future; it has already begun. Even if there's more to come, the best is yet to come. But it has begun, and so we do taste. We do get glimpses of heaven, even here and now. Yet the longing. For that final arrival, to be at rest at home, to not be homesick again, is distressing. The discomfort of displacement, being out of place, is real. Being misunderstood, mistreated, and sometimes the distress is unbearable, is desperate, like the psalmist here we find in Psalm one twenty. But all in all, this feeling of、uh, displacement of of the entire experience of a sojourner is good, and it's necessary because this feeling and this longing for heaven, this feeling of homesickness, keeps us on the right path and keep our eyes fixed on heaven. And not on things of this world, we do not hope and long, and ultimately find our peace and rest here. The best is yet to come, and it's not here yet. And so, this feeling of being prepared, of being on the way, prepares us for our heavenly home. Paul says in Second Corinthians four, for this light and momentary affliction, while we're here sojourners. Is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How can we say all the pains and sufferings of this world, as bad as it is, is only light and momentary? Only we can say that only when we arrive in heaven and we look back, then we see indeed is light and momentary. And right now is preparing us as we go through it. For the weight of glory beyond all comparison. So through this journey of this world and the trials on the way, and the response to those trials as we pray and and experience answered prayers, we learn to walk with God and we learn to walk with each other as fellow sojourners. And through these trials, our eyes are taken off this world and constantly being lifted up to long for heaven, where we belong. Now the psalmist concludes the psalm by pouring his heart out to God. He is not having fun, and he just wants to go home. Verse six, he says, "Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. I just want to be left alone. But when I speak, they are for war. They would not leave me alone." And here we find our final point. That this experience gets intensified, but all in all, they lead us to Christ. It begins in verse six as someone who's barely hanging on. How much longer, Lord? I just want to be home with you, with my people. And interestingly, he says, "I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war." It seems that he's pointing out not just his experience, but the senselessness of it. That he's not asking for it. 
that this persecution is unprovoked, unjust. He's a minority as a sojourner, and he just wants to be left alone. Why do they hate peace when I speak whatever I say? But this is how Jesus was treated. Christ entered the world and offered the forgiveness of sins, and he did nothing but good and kindness. But what did he receive in return? Unprovoked, unjust persecution. He was mocked for his wisdom. He was persecuted for his kindness, and he was nailed on the cross. And this is why on some level we share the same experience as believers, as followers. We, say, we share a similar, on a small scale, a similar treatment of our Lord because we belong to Him and not to this world. Jesus says as much in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, you don't belong here. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In verse 25 of John 15, they hated me without a cause. I did nothing to deserve this animosity. <clears throat> Why does the world hate God's people? Because it hates God. Why does it hate God? It's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. It's unjust and unprovoked. What has God done to provoke animosity? And what hope really is there for the devil and sinners to wage war against the Almighty. But I think this is the point of all this kind of senselessness and rhetorical questions that psalmists and sometimes God even ask of sinners, that perhaps sin and evil cannot be understood precisely because it's senseless. We want to know why. We want to ask why when we suffer injustice and persecution and pain, as if we will be comforted by a good explanation. If we understand the motivation of evildoers, maybe that's what we need to be comforted. But sin and evil have no good answers to give us. And yet we don't need explanation. We don't need to make sense of evil or sin to find comfort. We do need to trust God that He is good and all will be well. Judgment or mercy will come. And while we're here, we are called to ask God for comfort and strength and deliverance. We just need to trust God. Trust in His mercy and justice. Trust in His love and care for His people. And turn to God in honest and perhaps sometimes desperate prayers. Perhaps the prayer sometimes would just be like the psalmist, which essentially just says, help, I want to go home now. I've had enough. We can pray such prayers, not elegant or glamorous or perhaps um, precisely theologically all considered, but they are desperate and honest prayers. And we can pray such prayers because we know Christ understands. Christ understands our suffering because He has been through it. He, he uh, went before us. He was the first to go through it. And so he's ready to hear our prayers because he understands. And he's ready to strengthen us and comfort us. Now, in conclusion, how is it that we have this 
uh, strange situation that we have come to be sojourners of this world that we live in. How is it that we find ourselves living in a place, born into a place where we don't belong? The reality is, the Bible describes, that we were all at one point actually natives. We were all at one point natives of Meshach and Kedah, like everyone else. But God in His mercy set us apart, set His people apart, and gave us a new life to become a different people. And so we become sojourners passing through. We become a new people. With the second life, a second birth, we become God's people. The life as sojourners was not ours to begin with, but was given to us. And this is the life of Jesus as the first and only true sojourner who entered the, into the world who does not belong to the world. We were at one point, like our neighbors, by nature barbarians. Even now we can sense that remaining uh, tendency. We were at one point violent people. Even now we sense that violence in our hearts. We were the deceitful tongues and lying lips who deserve sharp arrows and heavenly fire. But the life of Christ comes to us and we have been joined and given this new life now as a different people, sojourners passing through this world. And this has extraordinary implications. This is why we have this longing. This is why we have this unquenchable homesickness for a place that we've never been before. We have this longing for heaven that we have never been before. And we have a longing and love for family members that we have never met before. I've never met many of you, or most of you actually this morning. But I have care and affection for, uh, for brothers and sisters in Christ because of Jesus' love for His people, for His church. And we have a love for God, not just as our maker or creator, but even as our Father. This did not belong to us. This is because we share Jesus' love for His Father. So now as sojourners, we are sharing the life of Jesus. We have been given a new life, the life of Christ, the life of a sojourner. But for a moment, while we're here, there's distress because of this new life, just as Christ experienced when he walked on earth. But there is also sufficient grace and, grace and promise to carry us through this journey so that we will fi finally arrive at our destination. There's the promise of heaven. But if there are uh, those among us who your hope for peace, for belonging, for identity is only in this world, somehow we can make it and I'll find rest uh, and peace and sense of belonging in this world. Sadly, the Bible says you're mistaken. There is no peace in this world. The world has nothing to offer but war and confusion because there is no peace that can be built on lies if it does not acknowledge its maker and the truth of its maker. There is, it's a lost cause to build a paradise here. But if we repent 
and turn to follow Christ, true peace and rest is promised to us. The heaven is promised to us. For now, we will feel out of place, though. But that's a good thing, again, because then we know that we don't belong here in this lost world. Psalm 120 is the beginning of 15 songs of ascent, and they are believed to be sung by Jews on their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. When we place our faith in Christ and receive this life as sojourners, we are also pilgrims. And then we know that we have joined the countless, of, countless saints of all ages. We are also singing songs of ascent in our entire life as we journey back to the new Jerusalem. Soon we will see our heavenly home, and we will forget all about the miseries of this lost world. It will seem light and momentary. There will be no more conflicts, no more war, no more sorrows, and no more tears. We will be with our people then, where we belong, and we will be with our Savior, and we will be with our Father in heaven, where we belong. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word and for preparing us on this journey, in this life, uh, where there are many trials and temptations and tribulations, perhaps. But we also trust that you are good today as yesterday, and you will see this journey through and take us to our final rest and peace with our people, with the fellowship and worship of you, with you. We give you thanks for, uh, for your presence among us. We give you thanks for this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.